welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. This week, we're discussing Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, the ninth and final installment in the Skywalker saga, directed by J.J. Abrams and co-written by Abrams and Chris Terrio. It is already proving very divisive compared to The Last Jedi and The Force Awakens. Morgan, a person who somewhat enjoys Star Wars, hated it. I, an obsessive Star Wars fan, also hated it. This episode will be full of spoilers, and we are recording it within hours of Morgan seeing the film. So, and I quote, her ire will remain fresh. For the recording. Um, man, we have a lot to say. A lot. So you saw this a few days ago and immediately texted me and were just like, this is so bad. It's so bad. My expectations were low because I'd also heard from other people who saw it that they did not like it. And despite having literally no expectation that this would be good in any way, it was worse than I imagined. I was shocked by how bad it was. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say, but I'm almost speechless in terms of like summing it up in a sort of pithy way at the top here because it was so miserably terrible. Well, the thing is, right, I, I that, just... like going into this, the last kind of few weeks of the press tour of this movie have made it relatively clear that J.J. Abrams was going to dial back a lot of the choices that Ryan Johnson made with The Last Jedi. You know, he did some quite bold things. I think we were all expecting J.J. Abrams to be more kind of conservative and for this to be a straightforward somewhat nostalgic conclusion to a trilogy right um and I was like okay I'll accept that I was kind of expecting this film to be like a good blockbuster with some decisions that I disagreed with it was a really bad blockbuster where I disagreed with virtually every single character choice so it wasn't even like I could be like oh well you know technically speaking the filmmaking was good. No, it was like, it, it even looked not that great. I mean, it didn't look bad, but it looked bad by the standards of a Star Wars movie, which is quite difficult because they have basically like an entire small micronation dedicated to, to character design and stuff. But yeah, we're assuming that most of listeners kind of know what happens in the movie, but I will just, just to let you know, I will give you like a quick plot summary. Leading out of The Last Jedi, J.J. Abrams has kind of put together the main trio of characters who have not really been put together in the previous two films, but like the fans really wanted them to be together and so did Abrams and so did the actors. So we now have this like really weird conglomeration of characters who kind of don't fit together. So it's like Finn, Ray, and Poe and then they're in a squad with Chewie and C-3PO and BB-8 And they all go off on this like quest to find a magical MacGuffin where they just kind of move around the galaxy looking for this little gadget. And then because Carrie Fisher passed away, they had to rewrite Leia's entire role and indeed probably the whole film. So a lot of the Resistance characters are just sort of stationary in this base with Leia, who doesn't have much screen time because they had to reuse archival footage of Carrie Fisher that they filmed for earlier films. And then the central element of the movie is that the Emperor Palpatine has returned from the dead. This is revealed in the first few minutes of the movie. It's not great, Bob. It's not great. Uh, (laughs) The first scene of the movie is Kylo Ren going to like a big gothic castle, which, by the way, none of those scenes will be visible on home release because it's all in the dark. (laughs) And he's like, oh, here's Palpatine, like a back from the dead for reasons they don't, as I recall, fully explain the logistics of. But he's apparently been manipulating all of the dark side stuff from behind the scenes. He was like using Snoke as a puppet to like manipulate Kylo Ren throughout his whole arc to the dark side. And then... The central drama becomes a very old school Sith versus Jedi concept where Palpatine wants to get Rey to kind of come over to the dark side. And so does Kylo Ren, but Kylo Ren kind of wants to partner up with Rey, whereas Palpatine's trying to like sow discord or whatever. And it all kind of culminates in the classic combination of a big battle between the Resistance and the First Order and a big Sith Jedi duel which is kind of ritualized as this Sith thing where Palpatine is trying to tempt Rey into killing him so she can absorb all of his darkness and inherit all of the Sith powers. And also they reveal that she is Palpatine's granddaughter, which is bonkers for a million reasons. 
It's very bad. It's kind of the number one thing that a lot of people were hoping wouldn't happen with this movie because the whole concept of Rey not coming from like a holy royal lineage was sort of key thematically to this whole trilogy and her her role. But yeah, it kind of ends with obviously defeating the bad guys. Kylo Ren dies, uh, but only after saving Rey's life and redeeming himself. And then everyone has a big party at the end. And it also feels like kind of a really pointless war because they don't kill off enough characters for the danger to feel real. We will discuss many elements of this later on. We have in-depth critiques for every single character. Almost all of them were treated very badly. Morgan, would you like to talk about Ray? <laughs> oh no, we're going to go bigger. We're going to go bigger before we get down into the details because until a couple of weeks ago when the press started happening and I was like, hmm, this seems perhaps like an issue. It honestly never even occurred to me that this movie would be bad. Like, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be a masterpiece or anything. But I was, I did, yeah, I was like, it'll be fine. Right. And I had thought for a while, like, obviously Carrie Fisher died and they were, of course, not expecting that. And so I was like, oh, they're going to have to rewrite this. That's so going to be really tricky. But The Force Awakens, which, of course, is the previous movie that J.J. Abrams directed, is my favorite of these three films. It's not as sort of philosophically interesting as The Last Jedi, but I think it's a much better movie. It's a wonderful movie. I love that picture. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think I just rewatched The Last Jedi and it was interesting to watch it in the wake of everyone sort of, I mean, obviously a lot of people love that movie, including you, but people I think were inclined to sort of really praise it after this movie started screening and everyone was sort of shit talking Ryan Johnson in the press because it was like a defense mechanism, right? Against the movie. And, um, I love Ryan Johnson and I watched the movie again and I was like, Oh, I feel exactly the same way as I did two years ago about this, which is that I think all the stuff with um, Luke and Ryan Kylo in that film is totally fantastic and like interesting and immersive. And then the other half of the movie really doesn't work. And it felt like there's a lot of studio notes about like how it was all going to be structured. And it's just kind of a messy film, but it sets up a sequel very well. It also has themes. It has it's many yes. themes. One of the questions I was actually going to ask you going into this podcast was, what are the themes of this film? Because <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> so, so the last movie has all of this stuff about Ray A, being a person from nowhere. Like, I was paying attention to that particularly because it was being talked about so much, and he really does emphasize that hugely in that film. And the other big, big thing, which of course is tied to that idea of her not having parents in a meaningful way is the desire to move on from the past which is kylo ren's whole thing like he had previously been obsessed with Darth Vader, and then he decides he's not going to do that anymore but instead of going back to his parents he's like no we're just getting rid of all of it we're just going to move forward and one of the interesting things about the movie is that in a way he kind of has a point i think like What's metatextually interesting is that the movie itself is kind of trying to move forward from the previous Star Wars movies, and that's kind of what Kylo Ren is also trying to do. So he's kind of on the side of the movie, but also he's the worst messenger for this because he himself is such a fucked up person. So there's this kind of odd balance between the two things. There's an amazing essay by the um, curator of the Museum of the Moving Image and film writer Eric Hines about this that we'll link to. Just really, really interesting. So there's all this kind of messy stuff going on in that movie that I think is just fascinating. And this movie starts, and it's just like, nah, we're just not going to do any of that. We're just going to throw all of it out. And uh, he's looking for a crystal thing, and then he's going to go to Palpatine and put his Vader helmet back on. And uh, Ray isn't actually a person from nowhere. She's actually Palpatine's granddaughter, and uh, it's good. It's all fine just forget any of that happened i was just like what happened here like and i had always assumed that they planned the whole thing out and so when everyone was like fuck jj abrams is gonna make her somebody's daughter i was like well maybe but if so then surely the studio had thought that from the get-go and like i mean it's not like he solely is making decisions which of course he's not like this is all coming from disney it's not purely a jj abrams problem but i watched this and i was like you know what they didn't plan anything There was no planning (laughs) at any point. Like, this is not an issue of Carrie Fisher dying and then them having to rewrite it. It's clearly that they just didn't have any fucking clue what they were doing. And so then they just decided to throw some stuff together to make people on the internet happy. 
and the result is this movie that makes no fucking sense. I, I, it's just... And I didn't realise until I was writing my review that the screenwriter Chris Terrio, or Chris Terrio, is the screenwriter of Batman v Superman. And I was like, I can't believe this didn't get more attention before the film's release. Because I'd seen the name. But I was just like, oh, I guess I recognise that name from somewhere. It was because he wrote one of the worst blockbusters in Living. He, co- he also co-wrote Justice League. Like, those are extremely bad films. He has a bad track record. Like, sure, he wrote Argo, or like co-wrote Argo, which is an okay film. Real grim. Yeah. I was watching this movie, and I was just like, does no one at Disney understand narrative at all? Why has this happened? How? I mean, it's so boring. Movies are so boring, and I'm sort of spinning the wheels in my head, sort of thinking about this as I was watching. And I was like, I'm not a professional screenwriter, but I have a pretty good grasp of narrative. And I could come up in 10 minutes with the beginnings of a better movie. Like a really, a really straightforward kind of conclusion, like we were sure. expecting, just like a conservative finale to a fairy tale, which this wasn't. Because like all this stuff with Palpatine is like, I mean, first of all, there's probably going to be kids in the audience who've only watched these films or only watched these films in the originals. So Palpatine's going to be kind of like a bit weird as a person to introduce out of nowhere. Something I find kind of fascinating about what you were saying about it potentially being unplanned is the fact that recently there has been so much press attention towards the fact that Solo and Rogue One both had a lot of upsets behind the scenes and both of them to one extent or another literally switched directors partway through and there was a lot of stuff refilmed and then re-edited together. But both of those films are far, far more coherent than this. Because um, I don't really like Solo that much. Like, I find it forgettable. I don't care for it. Other people care for it more. But, like, it was, like, a functional, generic blockbuster. But Rogue One, which I love, like, there are definitely, if you're aware that they had to edit stuff out, you can kind of tell, but not in a way that disrupts the flow of the film. And it really works kind of thematically and in terms of the narrative around the main characters and that kind of thing. But in this, there were just sort of, there were whole kind of threads which seemed unfinished or didn't fit together correctly. Like the whole thing with Finn, we're going to talk about each of the characters a bit more individually later, but Finn has this whole recurring thing throughout the film where he is planning to tell Ray something. When they first bring it up, he's like, oh, I couldn't tell you before we died. You know, they're about to die. And he's like, oh, I never had a chance to tell you. And then he doesn't. And I was kind of like, oh, no, are they setting up like a romance where he's in love with her? And they kind of keep bringing this back and it's clearly a recurring thing and there's a lot of tension there because you want to know what he's going to ask her and also Poe feels like really invested. So I'm like, oh, I guess because Poe's in love with Finn as we all know. Uh, He's jealous that Finn is in love with Ray. I was like, obviously that's not what's actually happening but I was like, this is really weird. And then they don't resolve it. So they have this thing which is like a clear setup. And they don't resolve it. And apparently what he was going to tell her is that he he thinks he's force sensitive. But like, the number one thing with these movies is that the films are the core canon. And if you don't put something in the films, it's just going to be like this hanging thread forever. And there were like a couple of other things like that. Like, um, like Lando's role. I'm about to share some great information with you, Morgan, by the way. I've only read small parts of the visual dictionary which accompanies this film, the reference book. Love a reference book. But I was looking at Lando's page and Lando's page reveals a subplot which is very clearly partially edited out of the film. And it's kind of teased at the end where he meets up with Janna, who is the new character. And they had this conversation where he's like, where are you from? And I was sitting there in the cinema like, oh no, they're not going to make it like she's like his long lost daughter or something because that'd be nonsense. She's like, oh, I don't know where I'm from because she's she's a former stormtrooper. And so she was like displaced from her family as a child, like Finn. And then Lando out of nowhere is like, well, we'll find your family then. So it's like, for some reason, Lando, whose like main job was being the sort of look out for yourself party mayor of a crime city. He's suddenly like, I'm in charge of finding all the stormtrooper kids and like resolving this diaspora issue, which is like a really weird role for him, especially because the film kind of implies that he's been retired and he's not really that interested in politics anymore. But apparently the actual reality is that A, Janna is his long lost daughter. B, she was kidnapped by the First Order as a child and he spent the past like 20 years looking for her. And C, he met up with Luke for like a whole period of time, like about 15 years ago. (laughs) And it's like, that isn't coherent because when he first shows up in this movie, he's like, oh, I don't want to join the resistance. That's over for me. And it's like, you've spent the last 15, 20 years looking for your long lost daughter. 
and then they don't explain on screen. And there's this weird scene that some people interpreted as him hitting on a woman who's like young enough to be his granddaughter because she's 21 and he's 77. What the fuck? It was just like, yeah. I mean, obviously there's always going to be stuff which is elaborated upon in the extended materials. And like Disney wants to sell a lot of those extended materials. However, that in this case is to the detriment of the film to a massive degree. And it doesn't make any fucking sense. I mean, yeah. Both those things, as I was watching, I was like, what is happening here? And it did not escape anyone's notice that these truncated emotional arcs all belonged to the black characters, who were also kind of just put together randomly. There were a lot of issues. None of the characters of colour came out well in this film. I feel bad for everyone involved. Rose was basically cut out, and a lot of people are very upset about that. I mean... That is so transparently a ploy to placate the internet Nazis who hated her that I was embarrassed for them. Like, for Disney, I feel obviously. so fucking bad for Kelly Marie Tran. Oh my god. And also, J.J. Abrams had the temerity to say in interviews, he was like, one of the best things Ryan Johnson ever did for this franchise was cast Kelly Marie Tran. I'm so thankful that like he brought her in and all this stuff. And it's like, you shafted her. It's blatantly obvious. It was really, really bad. Especially since this whole, like, MacGuffin subplot. They've put together this really arbitrary team of, like, Finn, Ray, and Poe, which means that Poe, basically his whole storyline of him becoming, like, a resistance commander is just, like, doesn't exist. So he's now just hanging on to Ray along with Finn. And then also Chewbacca and C-3PO. And they clearly had to write in new subplots so they would have a purpose to be in the film there. But then Rose has to stay behind because of reasons. Yes. I mean... Nothing in this movie happens for any logical reason. They just decided things because they did. I don't know. I mean, as you say, the sort of false trio dynamic is really obvious here, too. I think John Boyega, in an interview, he had kind of, with the last movie, too, expressed some discontent with his role, which I kind of understood because I think he definitely is shafted in that movie. He doesn't have as much to do and he has a lot of kind of goofy stuff, which isn't great. But he said something. I obviously so much of the press around this movie, it's hard to tell how much is like the studio deciding that this is what everyone's going to say and how much is the people really expressing their feelings. But he said something along the lines of like, you know, we were supposed to be like the trio of the movies, like in the first movies and like they that didn't happen in the last one. So now we really get to do it. And that's so great. And I was like, well, they were going to kill off Oscar Isaac in the first movie, so I don't think that was the original conception here. And then when you see it in action in this point, there's no reason for this. It doesn't well, work. I have, I have so many thoughts on this, because I, I would have loved to have seen like a trio movie, because I love those three characters, and the actors have such a great dynamic, and they clearly think of themselves as a trio, because they've spent so much time together in the press tour. So I understand from their perspective why they see it that way. And I would have been happy to see that play out like in a way that actually worked in this film. Um, but with the first film, J.J. Abrams ended it by separating all three characters because Ray goes off to be with Luke, Poe goes off to be with the, with the Resistance, and Finn is in a coma. So Ryan Johnson was picking up from there. Like, obviously those characters were going to be separated in that film and would only like reunite at some point in the final act, which is what happened. And for that, because of like where they were geographically, that meant that Poe and Ray don't know each other. And then in this movie, like the dynamic they create just doesn't feel natural at all because suddenly Poe is really irritable. Like they don't really, they have all this banter that feels really false rather than the sort of organic chemistry they had earlier. And they had this, you know, like Finn and Ray and Finn and Poe both have these really wonderful, like warm relationships in The Force Awakens. But to do with the stuff that like John Boyega has been saying in interviews, it was actually him and Daisy Ridley, and they were even saying this kind of while promoting The Last Jedi, although in a slightly less critical way, because obviously they were promoting the film. But they were both made it quite clear that they were really upset by the fact that they didn't get to work together on that film, because they were really good friends, and like they basically had their big break together, and they're the same age, and they're both British, and all this stuff. And they were just so happy to be working again together again here. And I think it's just a really great example of how kind of actors' priorities often they will seem like a little weird if you're only looking at it from an outsider perspective as someone who's like, actually, that role wasn't that great. Because I thought that Finn's role in this movie was pretty disappointing. Like, he spent a lot of time basically just running after Ray, shouting her name. He didn't get any particular 
kind of emotional character development, I would say his role was less interesting than it was in the previous film, even though he was more serious and he was more kind of straightforwardly heroic. Like he got to achieve stuff in battle and that sort of thing. But it's like they didn't really pick up on any of the older threads about kind of the stormtrooper stuff. There was just like one short scene with Janna and that was it. But John Boyega is like, I love this role, it's so much better. And it's because he and Daisy Ridley got to hang out together a lot. And that is like a really fun workplace environment for them, you know? And it's like, that is, they're getting a different thing out of it than fans who are like, I feel like this character wasn't treated well in the script. It's also a matter of like, this is why these people need to be told how to talk to the press. And clearly Disney was promoting the narrative of like, yeah, the last one, no, no. Which is interesting because the cinema score rating for this came out today. And obviously cinema score is a very imperfect method. This is when there's a company that sort of um, asked people coming out of the movie what they thought of the film to sort of assess audience reaction. It's obviously not a metric of how good it is. It's more a metric of how closely the thing matches the audience's expectation of that thing right and basically blockbuster movies like big mainstream blockbusters are almost always like an a minus right so (laughs) the last two star wars movies both got ace and this got a b plus which is like pretty low for a movie of this type no this is the only i checked this is the only movie in the star wars franchise to get a a b they all get a or a minus so the supposed narrative that like everyone hated the last jedi is so absurd. Like yeah. it's like five people on the internet yeah. who hated it, but they're so terrified of that that this has led them to this absurd situation where not only they've made this stupid movie, but also they're promoting it in this really unprofessional way. I just am so frustrated. It's really aggravating to me. Like grow the fuck up and stop this. Like ah, yeah. Like as if you're someone who's really plugged into kind of fandom and that sort of thing, as we both very obviously are. It's always very frustrating because it's this kind of black box situation where you can't really tell what Disney is attempting to do. And often the reason is because it's just really chaotic. Like there usually isn't like a really smart method behind the madness of any large corporation. Like they don't behave logically. (laughs) Um, But like kind of the the simultaneous fact that this trilogy has been promoting really heavily like women and people of colour in the cast and being like, this is a more progressive kind of series and talking about like loads of kind of essentially straightforward commercial marketing of characters like Finn and Rose and Ray, you know? And in the last film, there was kind of so much attention paid to Rose as like the first woman of color who had like a really significant lead role. And then afterwards, like she had this really, just really beloved fandom, obviously also was like faced with all this harassment from racist assholes. And I remember like when she went to like the main Star Wars convention, she was like the one person who got like a colossal like standing ovation because people fucking love her and they feel really defensive of her. And the decision to kind of sideline her in this movie, like Morgan said, is just so, it's such a mistake, you know, especially when you consider kind of the idea of like, kids watch these movies. Obviously, you know, everyone watches these films, but like just the idea of like an incomprehending like seven-year-old being like, where's Rose? It's kind of saddening. And just all the stuff to do with like posed sexuality and that sort of thing. It's like they're trying to have like their cake and eat it and then fucking over everyone. And they've wound up with this really bad film. Well, it's simultaneously a desire to, like, parcel out satisfactory things to the various fans while not fully going there in the one area where they don't want to do that, which is obviously the gay stuff, right? So it's like, we're going to have the three characters together because that's what people want. We're going to have Kylo Ren and Rey kiss the end because that's what people want. We're going to bring back all these old characters. So that's what people want. We're going to show you the fucking Ewoks because people love Ewoks. It's like, what? What? (laughs) Yeah, but also it's like, that's not how art works because if you really want to, like, it's when someone has a really, like, when a great artist, first of all, like, if someone who is good at making art, which J.J. Abrams actually was in the case of The Force Awakens, um, you know, you have a singular idea and you push forward with that idea and you have a coherent artistic vision and it will speak to some people and it won't speak to some other people, which is what happened with The Last Jedi. Like Ryan Johnson had a very clear vision and he had far less concerns about kind of the fan reaction. And it's been very interesting to kind of look at his his kind of emotional attitude in the last two years um, because obviously you can't really know like the truth behind any of this stuff, but as far as one can tell, 
he has an astoundingly positive attitude to that film. Like he just, he says all the time, like how much he fucking loved working on The Last Jedi. He has a really healthy attitude to like all of the backlash. He's active on Twitter in a non-confrontational way. He seems generally really upbeat. I mean, it probably helps that he has a colossally well-reviewed movie that everyone loves out right now, which is great timing. <laughs> um, but it just, it seems like he he did what he wanted. He was really excited to make Star Wars movie. Everyone whose opinion he cared about liked it and he was happy with the result. And what's happened here is like, you know, the classic too many cooks problem. A bunch of people have got together and tried to make this film by committee and everyone is pissed off. <laughs> And there's so much like just really fluffy fan service in this. Like the scene where, did you notice the scene where someone, I don't recall who, but someone like hands Chewbacca a medal? Yes. And I didn't know what it was. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I was like, like, here, is like this? this is bullshit. It's like, yeah. So like, there's just like a fandom in joke that like when all the characters in the first movie get their medals from Princess Leia at the end, like Chewie doesn't get a medal or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> no, Chewie's got a medal. <laughs> Oh my god. And I no. was like, of all that the is, childish... Yeah. <laughs> well, I kept thinking about The Force Awakens while watching this in a structural way. Yeah. Because one of the things I admire so much about that movie is that it has this kind of um, Aristotelian compactness to it. It really focuses in on the couple of characters that it's telling its story about. And it drills down into the emotions and doesn't give you more than you need to really understand what is going on. So the most important and compelling relationship in those first two movies and should have been the whole thing is obviously the relationship between Rey and Kylo Ren, such as it is, because they're the opposing forces in this sort of, you know, Titanic battle. Right. And they set them up in the first movie. And then when they finally meet, it's this sort of electric situation. And that's when he finally takes his mask off and you like see Adam Driver and his beautiful hair. And it's very powerful. And they also basically don't have any lightsaber stuff in that movie until the very end when the two of them have their big lightsaber battle. It's very well choreographed. And it's also like plays on your nostalgia because we all love that stuff. But because they've restrained it from you, for so long it's just like oh yes i love this and then it's handled emotionally very well because it reflects those two characters yeah um and i just thought that that and then other things in the movie too but it just showed so much how smart they were about knowing what was going to really like engage the audience but not going too far so that it was excessive and this was so the opposite of that in every way. Not I think I messaged you like there were too many lightsaber battles. <laughs> well, right. So they're just like endless lightsaber stuff. And it wasn't choreographed, interestingly. There's one scene where they're on like an old ship in the ocean. And they're literally just like, it's like people punching each other without just like smacking each other. Like they're just sort of hacking away at each other with this totally uninteresting way. And... That's like the fifth lightsaber battle in the movie. And you're just like, I don't care about this at all. And the idea that you would try to figure out what the core relationships of the characters in the movie are that are important to the story and also going to make the audience feel something and sort of dole them out in the right way, write the characters in a sensible way, is so not present in this at all. Not that you have to do the same thing of, like, we're only going to put these characters together twice. Because, obviously, in the last movie, those two characters, and I'm kind of just using them as an example here, are, like, talk to each other much more. And it's very effective. But just the understanding of how the narrative is going to work structurally and emotionally is just, like, fully absent. Just nothing. And I, it was so perplexing to me because the, pre, like, the earlier movie that J.J. Abrams also directed totally gets it. And this, it was fully gone i was like how did this happen and this is the movie making by committee problem yeah. right is that it's not they're not attempting to create a piece of art they're attempting to just jumble a bunch of stuff together that they think people might like and then what comes out is this incomprehensible nonsense i mean the ray the ray kylo stuff was so strange because obviously those are kind of the two leading performances and i think we can all agree really good actors, really good in those roles specifically. Um, And that kind of was the only thing that was really elevating what they'd written for the characters because 
the themes such as they were were basically just kind of a continuation of what we'd already seen in The Last Jedi. So the idea of Rey being conflicted and being sort of attracted to Kylo Ren and both of them wanting to tempt the other one over to their side. But they also complicate that by having Palpatine show up and then it's like they have to redeem Kylo Ren into Ben Solo in the final act of the film so they can like partner up and he can save her and stuff. And you end up with this situation where you're getting these really strong performances and you're definitely like, yeah, there's so much tension between these characters. But like his redemption doesn't make any sense because it's just like, well, he he just realized he was wrong and like his mother gave him a psychic message and then, you know, he symbolically dies and then comes back to life as Ben Solo and there's this egregiously unnecessary cameo from Harrison Ford. And then kind of in the finale, like he never really speaks and no. it's like they, they're fully aware that like they failed to actually redeem him in any moral or political sense. So they're just trying to be like, okay, we're going to keep this purely symbolic. And it just ends up in a situation where you're depowering Ray because you're now making it that like her success is simultaneously because of her genetic legacy to Palpatine and also because of her relationship with Kylo Ren. So it's like she's now beholden to these two men in her life in a very kind of regressive way. And it's kind of backtracking on all the really interesting ideas we discussed earlier about her parentage. And then it's just like, well, they kiss. And you're like, sure, if you watch that kind of in absolute isolation, I mean, I I don't personally like ship those characters, but I completely see where people are coming from and I get it. And like, if you're watching in isolation, it's like, yeah, okay. And then as soon as you think about anything else, you're like, well, he he hasn't like actually been redeemed. Like, right. And then, like, and Ray's like best friend was enslaved by the First Order as a child, and until like a week ago, Kylo Ren was referring to himself as the supreme leader, and we've seen them like commit genocide all over the entire galaxy, and it's so different from the way they deal with Vader's quote unquote redemption in the final film, because with him, it's a case of him only being redeemed in the eyes of Luke, and then that's that only happens because he instantly dies. So at the last moment. Darth Vader realizes that he's been wrong and he sacrifices himself and kills the Emperor or helps to kill the Emperor. And then Luke kind of mourns him. But like, there's no sense that we are meant to be like, well, he was a great guy all along. It was just very muddled and very poorly handled. Well, I think the the Kylo Ren stuff, the Rey stuff, and the Leia stuff all connect together in terms of the plot dysfunction, right? So the fact that they they have all this stuff with Carrie Fisher that they've awkwardly stuck in the movie in a way that just doesn't work because yeah, you can I'm tell still, that we were know. talking about this before the film came out but like I'm still surprised that there's not been more conversation about that now like it's something I focused on quite a lot in my kind of initial review because when I was watching it I was like obviously I'm going to be picking up on this more because I'm thinking about it as a critic as well as as a fan but most people are going into this film aware that Carrie Fisher is dead yeah. And all of the fan people who are watching it on opening night will probably be aware to some degree how they solved this problem by using unused footage. But it's blindingly obvious in all of her scenes that they've had to write these quite awkward conversations around her half of the dialogue. So you have these conversations which aren't really that meaningful and they're trying to kind of imbue it with her as this a kind of mentor figure to Ray, but it doesn't quite land because they've had to construct these really false situations. And also it means that like Ray has to be wearing her original outfit for part of it because like she was wearing her that outfit when she hugged Leia. And there's just a whole bunch of issues. And I think Morgan and I both agree that Leia should have been killed off much earlier in the film, like in the very first act. And right. then they would have been free to like have the resistance function like as a unit. And then Poe could have been like, you know, the leader there instead, and he could have continued his arc and all this other stuff. And instead, it's like anchored into the Ray Kylo Ren plot. Well, also, aside from just the practical concerns of using that footage, which I think did not work at all, if you kill her off literally right at the beginning of the movie, like first scene, or you open with the crawl and say, like, in a tragic accident or in an attack or whatever, right? Like, yeah. you know, Leia died. Then you set up the Kylo Ren plot as he's having this massive existential crisis over the fact that his mother is dead. So he's trying to 
You're so right. I hadn't even considered that, but you're completely right. Because this whole thing is that he's fucking obsessed with his parents. Right. So he's trying to lead this, you know, government or whatever. He's obviously not suited for it. He's been following this, you know, leader the whole time. And all of a sudden he's in charge. So what the fuck is he going to do? Then his mother dies. And that's like, you know, sending him into this spiral. And that is so much more interesting on a character level than having him just suddenly in the middle of the movie be like, yeah, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't. Because obviously he has to redeem himself and die at the end of the movie. That is how stories work. Like, that is, you're going into the movie expecting that to happen. I guess they could have pulled it off in some, in some other way, but that seems to me to be obviously the most satisfactory end to this. Yeah. But the way they do it is so bloodless. Because they haven't given him anything interesting to do the entire movie. All of his dialogue is basically just, like, expository stuff about the fucking Sith to Rey, which is, like, great. Like, <laughs> sure. And then he shows up and is just like, yeah, I've, I've, you know, he's decided that he's been bad. And then he, like, helps save her. And he, like, throws his lightsaber away. I have to say, I'm sorry this episode is so disjointed, but I just remembered yet another thing. The sheer volume of lightsabers in this in this movie. There was just so much lightsaber swapping. Like, the, and also partly because of the Carrie Fisher scene, because she was holding a lightsaber in one of those clips, they have like these conversations where they're holding, they're like passing a lightsaber back and forth. And it's like, <laughs> oh, this is, it's like a continuity error. And I was like, this is just so, it's such bad storytelling. And it was just upsetting to me because I adored Carrie Fisher so much, like all of us. And it was just ridiculous. And also kind of the way they tried to make her character more important to the story actually kind of felt insulting and pointless because like obviously we all wanted to see the Leia film that never existed but the way they tried to emphasize her character was just undercutting her history because they have this ludicrous like CGI flashback that is like oh yeah she was like training as a Jedi with Luke and they make it that like Rey so she was like passing on that skill to Rey and they made it that like to become a Jedi you have to do like an obstacle course like it was the second scene of the movie is like Rey doing this obstacle course and Leia's like, oh, I had a vision that, like, my son is going to be bad or die or whatever. And, like, also, I'm not worthy of my lightsaber and I'm going to give it up. And it's like, so you're saying that she's, like, just preemptively really fucked up about her son and also doesn't think she's worthy? Like, this is all just really depressing, bad material for Leia. Yes. And if they had done the obvious thing and had her die right at the beginning and then have the whole movie be about Kylo being fucked up about her then it's about her, even if she can't be in it, right? Like, there's no way to solve the problem of her being dead, obviously. But if you have the movie emotionally revolve around the crux of her death, then at least you get some sort of emotional fulfillment about that being the case. And you can have the other characters also dealing with the fallout of that practically and emotionally, like you say, with the resistance, right? But instead, it's just, like, thrown in in the middle in this nonsense way. That just doesn't make any fucking sense. And Ray the whole time, because of the Palpatine stuff, is just sort of like wandering around in a trance because she just has a feeling. She just has a feeling. She has to do this or that. So that completely takes away her agency also. And it is just boring. It is so boring. To think that you they had the setup of the last film with these characters and could have done all of this interesting stuff with them and instead produced this. Kylo Ren is the most interesting villain character we've had in pop culture in so long, and you want to see him both redeem himself and die. I certainly did. I was really looking forward to that. And instead, it's like, I don't know, he falls off a cliff for a while, and then he, like, heals her, and they kiss awkwardly, and then he just falls over and is dead. And I was like, that's not... It's it's real grim. No. No. I actually, this also has reminded me, we need to talk about the lack of deaths. But yes. um, also, just to round that off, I have a quote from an interview with Ryan Johnson kind of discussing Ray's parentage. This was obviously long before this film came out. This was promoting The Last Jedi. It's from Slash Film. We will put a link in the show notes. He says, if you look at, for example, the Vader, I am your father moment from The Empire Strikes Back, I think that moment's so powerful because it's the hardest possible thing Luke and the audience could hear at that moment. It takes away the easy answers, basically. We thought he was just a bad guy that you could hate and want to kill, but that one sentence and suddenly it's more complicated than that. It's harder than that. If Rey in this movie, if someone had told her, yes, here's the answer, you are so-and-so's daughter, here's your place in the world, here you go, um, that would be the easiest thing she and the audience could hear. 
And it's like, even beyond all the stuff to do with like, now she's beholden to these two male characters and what have you, that is like, just narratively, this is predictable in a bad way. Because like, a lot of people are like, oh, well, Star Wars is mythic. It's meant to be really predictable. And it's like, yes, but this this is like predictable in a way that kind of sends a negative message and makes everything about sort of genetic legacy and that sort of thing. And I just keep thinking like, oh, interesting that J.J. Abrams would say this, the successful producer son of two successful Hollywood producers who recently got his own son a job writing Spider-Man despite the fact that he's an unqualified college student. Intriguing opinion you have here from your place of privilege. (laughs) But yeah, let's talk about some deaths. I actually, by the time this podcast is out, I may have an article published about this. I'm sure Morgan will agree with me on this because we both like characters to die. But there were not enough character deaths in this. And what's more, there were six separate scenes where we thought a character had died, but it was a fake out and they were actually alive. You should be allowed one of those per film. Maybe two. The worst was when the the First Order captures Chewie and then the, he's like going up in a transport and then Ray kind of accidentally blows it up and then he just isn't dead. And then later they find this out and they're like, oh, he must have been in a different transport. It's like, well, there was only one and you saw it blow up. So I don't really know how he suddenly got onto their spaceship, except that they didn't want to kill off Chewbacca. I've just formed a theory. What if Chris Terrio and J.J. Abrams were writing the script as a round robin and one of them wrote the death and the other one's like, oh no, can't have that. <laughs> and they didn't look back at anything the other person had written. It was just Don't a game. rewrite, just go forward. Because <laughs> <laughs> they did that with C-3PO and it's like, you have to kill off some characters in a war. I mean, say what you fucking will about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling and God knows we will because she's bad. But those books they kill off a lot of characters towards the end of the war to kind of show the impact. And that is a lesson that blockbuster franchises need to learn. This movie literally killed off fewer characters that like felt important than Avengers Endgame. And Avengers Endgame only allowed characters to die if their like, actors' contracts were over. <laughs> um, and in this, it's just like, of course we know Kylo Ren and the Emperor are going to die. We know that Princess Leia is going to die because Carrie Fisher is dead. And then they don't kill off anyone else. If they're just so precious. It's like, oh no, we, we can't kill off any faves. It might make the fans sad. And it would prevent them from being able to come back for a television show on Disney+, Plus, Except, which I assume they're hoping no, to do. No, because Cassie and Andor, the deceased hero of Rogue One, is getting his own TV show. So True. you could fucking do it. And like almost all of the extended canon takes place before whatever the most recent movie is. They are well yeah. adept at doing this. I was barely even thinking about this at the end of the movie because it didn't even cross my mind that anyone would die because it was so pathetic as a film that like there's no way they're gonna have the nerve to actually kill anybody right like that would take guts when they brought back c-3po i was like fuck off because also c-3po was very annoying to me in this movie i completely understand that is a taste thing he is kind of meant to be annoying but i found him annoying in this film and it would have been a bit better if he had just sacrificed himself instead of coming back to fucking life like Chewie and Zori Bliss and Kylo Ren and Rey and Palpatine. <laughs> I mean, it gets back to the classic problem with all of these blockbusters, right? Which is just that there are no stakes ever about anything. Even the way they've marketed this, which is like, the end of the Skywalker saga. We promise. It's the end this time. And I was like, I mean, sure. Yeah. Totally. I definitely believe that in 10 years you won't keep doing this. Like, no, that's not how Hollywood works now. But they want you to feel like it's meaningful. And it's especially frustrating in the context of Star Wars because kind of the point of Star Wars is it's like viewed as more important. It's like a genuine epic. You know, it is different from the Marvel movies where you get like three per year and they're very kind of simple storytelling and simple world building. Like, yeah, it, it just feels very silly to have such a weightless finale with this like freaking like anime battle at the end with all this force lightning i was just like force lightning really (laughs) well i think this was why i was so enraged watching it i mean it is really really bad so that is that is a component but i also was just like there is a higher burden on star wars to be good than other stupid blockbuster movies 
you know, like they occupy an incredibly important place in American pop culture and global pop culture, obviously, but American pop culture in particular. And it's not like the original Star Wars movies are like high masterpieces of cinema, but they operate in a different way than like the MCU movies, which are just fully, I mean, not that some of those movies aren't like pretty good or fun to watch, but they are just purely commercial enterprises, right? Which is fine. And these films are obviously also commercial enterprises. They make them to sell toys and to sell tickets and whatever. But in theory, they are supposed to be better than this. And the last two, even if I had some issues with The Last Jedi, are attempting to do something that is better than this film and better than most blockbusters that you see coming out now. Because like, obviously, The Force Awakens relatively formulaic structure and kind of ends with them blowing up another, another Death Star. But... In terms of the emotional and political themes, like you can write theses on like multiple elements of all of these films and just even the kind of production value side, like the design and all of the background characters and all that stuff, there is so much kind of weight to it. And that is kind of the problem with this one. And it's like coming out of the film, I was kind of thinking, I'll be interested to see how I think of this in a few years, you know, because we have, of course, recorded uh, episodes on all three of the Star Wars prequels, which are all genuinely just very bad films. Um, and I have a lot of fondness for many elements of those movies. And so do many other Star Wars fans, you know, even even though most of us basically will acknowledge that they're bad films, there are elements that you're like, I'm into this. And at the moment, the problem with this film is that like, in a technical sense, it is better than the Star Wars prequels and that like all of the actors are giving good performances and like you've got the production values are better because it's not like kind of full of 2003 era bad CGI but in terms of kind of the deeper political storytelling there was stuff to work with in the prequels that was interesting and kind of the emotional arc it's just like here I at the moment anyway don't kind of feel like there's that equivalent going on here and like Morgan clearly very pissed off I think this film is really bad, but it's almost like coming out of the movie, out of the theatre, I was kind of like, well, it's almost like this film like doesn't exist. <laughs> it's just sort of like, what, what was that? <laughs> I mean, I'm not like a massive Star Wars fandom person, but if I, going forward, am thinking about this story, and like, I was really invested in those characters from the first two movies, partially, I think, because I just love Adam Driver so much. He's probably my favorite working actor right now. And I think that performance in those first two movies is just tremendous. But I also really love Ray. I think this other supporting characters are fun. So I was like heavily invested in this movie being good. And so I was very angry, obviously, when it wasn't. So I think if, when I'm thinking back on this story, I'm just going to not like this movie won't exist to me either, right? Like it just didn't happen. Fine. Whatever. But I was thinking about this in the context of the prequels watching it. And I was like, this makes the prequels look good by comparison. Because what do you can say about now. them? They are planned out. George Lucas had an idea. He planned the whole thing out. He knew how it was going to end. And then he executed it poorly. But he did it. And it's a tragic arc, right? Standard thing, whatever. And this, you're just like, what? Who was doing this? What was anyone's thought process? And also, process? the political world building in the prequel trilogy is like the strongest element, right? Because it's the element that doesn't require a great deal of uh, of like emotional coherency. Because it is this really, actually quite well illustrated sort of depiction of a crumbling empire and kind of the death of democracy and sort of propaganda and uh, fascism rising and taking control under people's noses and that sort of thing. And it's a really great build up to the world that we have introduced whole cloth in the original trilogy, right? And the first two of the sequel trilogy do so much great work in terms of the political world building without like being super kind of, without like really discussing it. It's as usual with Star Wars, a lot of this is kind of, woven into just the the visual stuff you know and the how we see the, the first order rise and kind of tying into kylo ren's character arc and then we have like hux as his opposite number and it's a really great kind of allegor allegorical look at the idea of kind of neo-nazis just like copying what an earlier generation of fascists did before and we kind of see more of like their oppressive regime and that sort of thing and then in this film like there are obviously scenes where we see stormtroopers being bad and oppressing people in one of the city scenes. And we know that these characters are villains, but all of the political stuff is basically gone 
because everything is overshadowed by the power of Palpatine and J.J. Abrams' obsession with kind of returning to this really kind of binary idea of Jedi versus Sith, which was very much, it was already kind of watered down a little bit in The Force Awakens even, but then in The Last Jedi, there was much more kind of ambiguity to it and like going back to the idea of the Jedi as this like quite flawed organization, which this doesn't acknowledge at all even though it's like the whole purpose of the prequels is to be like maybe the jedi weren't that great everything's really fucked up because of this like structured religious order but like with this film everything that the resistance does feels completely pointless (laughs) partly because like they spend most of it just like hanging around where carrie fisher has to be filmed and partly because you get to the final battle and it's like yeah lando managed to recruit all of these millions of people at the end to join poe's fleet but it only matters in the sense that they're kind of present until Ray is able to blow everything up with magical force powers to like an absurd degree. And then it's over. And it's just like, what is going on here? Like, does, I mean, what about all the kind of the ideas of kind of normal people being able to rebel? Like Rose is completely ignored. So we no longer have a character who kind of represents like everyday rebellion. So it's just like, you've completely abandoned this really important, culturally relevant key theme of the franchise. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the political stuff in Star Wars is always sort of murky. Like, it never quite works as an allegory for real life. People tend to interpret it however they want to. Oh, for sure. But in this film, it just, like, wasn't present. Well, so, the way the previous one ends is, like, they put out a distress signal for people to come help them, and nobody does. And so they have to sort of escape, and they're, like, the last sort of remnants of this resistance fight, right? And... There's no discussion of anything to do with politics in this whole movie. And then at the end, basically the same thing happens where they like put out the call for help. And then it's just like a, a bazillion ships are just there to help. And I was like, so the same thing happened. And this time, just because it's convenient for the plot, they all came. Yeah. Like, and theoretically Lando did that. But like, I, what? They're just, it's, there's no reason behind anything that happens in this movie, except that it looks good. And uh, it worked in this precise moment. So that's it. There's no thought. And even though they're clearly being massacred by the massive colossal fleet of zombie First Order ships, featuring Richard E. Grant, lots of fun, love him. Yeah, there's still like no fucking character death. They literally kill off like one member of the Resistance and it's the X-Wing pilot character who's played by J.J. Abrams' friend, Greg Grunberg. So, so. <laughs> and Hux weirdly, who just is the, the strangest role in this film. Like, I actually what? really enjoyed that. I know that some people are probably going to be really annoyed, but I was like, going into the film, I was like, I hope Hux just has a really ignominious death, because that's what he deserved. And I guess they just didn't have room for a First Order character, so they just have him being shit. And then he dies in a really stupid way, and I was like, I, I know some people will want him to have something more impressive, but I actually enjoyed this quite a lot. <laughs> I just found it, again, like, incompetent writing. Like, he's the spy, which feels... I mean, I guess you could make that plausible in character way, but based on what we've seen of him, doesn't feel totally right. And then he just gets shot immediately, and I was like, okay, like, <laughs> sure, sure, why not? Like, okay. Yeah, it just was very depressing to me yeah. on a um, more macro level in terms of everything that's happening in Hollywood right now with Disney in particular, because they have such a monopoly on everything including like movie theaters they basically can just buy out yeah they own all movie theaters cinema yeah and this is what we have what's the incentive to make a good movie everyone's gonna go see this i did right like whatever and they can just make shit sell a lot of toys and and great continue to have people argue over the one second lesbian kiss which is either Either disgraceful for its lack of representation or disgraceful because lesbians exist, depending on which person you are currently in my Twitter mentions. Actually, I can't believe we've not discussed Poe yet. Many oh, of you yeah, know, I kind of thought we had. No, we've kind no, of touched right. upon him, but Poe, my favourite character, and also Poe has like a lot of controversy and kind of discussions about this. Like, obviously, ever since the first movie, there's been like a lot of people ship him and Finn, not to the degree that Kylo Ren and Rey are like a central facet of this fandom, but Finn and Poe are extremely popular as a couple, but also they are much more prominent in terms of just the the general sort of pop culture quest for like meaningful queer representation in mainstream media. And 
I don't think anyone was really expecting those characters to get together in this film, but there was definitely a hope sort of in general that Poe would be portrayed as queer. And this is something that Oscar Isaac and John Boyega have spoken about in interviews and especially kind of Oscar Isaac as the trilogy progressed. Cause I think John Boyega has kind of been more realistic. He was like, I don't really think that's happening, but like I support what fans want to do. And Oscar Isaac has been like, I really want this to be a thing for my character, like, you know, for his character to be portrayed as queer in some capacity. And the press tour for this film has actually been quite disparating in the context of Oscar Isaac. Cause like usually, I mean, in the previous films, you know, he's not like a grumpy guy who hates the press. Like he, the previous films, he's doing loads of fun interviews and stuff. Like he's hanging out with his co-stars this time around. There's definitely like a very downbeat tone to the clips that I've seen. And it just seems like he's not that happy with the role that he's had to play here and part of that is the fact that he actually understands how important it was for a lot of fans for this character to be queer and a lot of the time you know you'll see kind of actors and filmmakers discuss this around one character or another but they won't kind of fully understand like the emotional and political weight that comes behind this sort of thing because it's not just sort of a shallow desire for a character to have a boyfriend and be like oh it'd be really cool if this character was gay like people have a lot of investment in Star Wars in general And because Oscar Isaac was supportive of this, he was like a really rare example of a man in Hollywood who would be willing to discuss this sort of thing in the context of like a massive blockbuster role. Like this isn't something you see with like Chris Evans from like Captain America. You'll, I mean, you know, not in the sense that I think he's homophobic or anything, but he'd be like, you know, he'd maybe be like, oh, it's nice that people write fan fiction, but like no further comment because obviously that's not happening. And also it's like not necessarily on his radar. And this is, by far Oscar Isaac's like most high profile role. And in this film, his interviews have basically been like, well, I really wish that my character could have hooked up with Finn. I really wish that this character could have been gay, but unfortunately that didn't happen. And in fact, the movie does hook him up with a woman. And obviously it's like, we all know that uh, Poe Dameron's bisexual. So that means nothing to me. (laughs) But like, it's just this really, it's just this really crappy and predictable situation that we've seen happen in other media franchises where basically a studio panics and tries to make a character look straight because they're worried. And that very much seems like it's what happened here because there's no reason for Poe to be given a love interest, really. And it doesn't really work very well. Like, she could have just been his friend. Like, they introduced Carrie Russell, who is, of course, universally beloved by people who know who Carrie Russell is. And she's playing sort of a, a smuggler character who he knew in his younger days. And they just have, like, a bit of a flirtation situation and the way Oscar Isaac has been discussing this in interviews is he's now got to the point where instead of being like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got this kind of like, you know, flirtation going on with this woman I used to know. He's now like, well, of course, this character is meant to be very ambiguous. And in earlier films, I was playing him and is in love with Rit Finn. And I was like, holy shit, he is really going for it. <laughs> but like, it's depressing. And also there's a secondary reason why I was not happy with Poe's role, which, as I discussed earlier, changes his personality significantly because they derailed his plot arc and also made him, like, really irritable all the time. But also they've now given him this new backstory where he is... He was, like, a spice runner with this character, Zori Bliss, on the planet Kajimi. (laughs) And this means that they've made the Latino hero of the franchise a drug smuggler. Like, spice is a narcotic. He is a criminal narcotics runner. And... The whole point of his character is he is this really quite like old school, almost sort of like World War II children's comic style hero who's like really optimistic and upbeat and confident and charming. And that doesn't mean he's like a one dimensional character. Like the last film gave him this storyline that was all about him kind of failing and picking himself back up again and and realizing that he needs to make himself worthy of command and all that stuff. But it's like you don't need to make give this character a really dark backstory to make them interesting. You can introduce a character like Zori Bliss just as like an old acquaintance rather than an old lover. And you can introduce her without making it that he was a drug smuggler, which is like a really bad, like bad optics politically and racially, but like bad for the character. And I think anyone who's familiar with his backstory as a fan found that really confusing. And I was only able to make sense of it once I consulted the reference books. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they've given him a new timeline where basically we, we already knew that like he is the son of two of the original like rebels from the original movies. And he um, became like a star pilot in the New Republic fleet and then defected to join Leia's resistance because he was like, I am morally obligated to fight against fascism and I don't think the government's doing that. So it's like wonderful arc. 
don't need any further additions. But they were like, we're going to put in some drug running in there. And I was like, time-wise, when does he do this? Like, does he take like a gap year before college? (laughs) Apparently he ran away from home at 16 and spent five years as a drug smuggler, age 16 to 21, approximately, basically as a heroin dealer, presumably like murdering people and stuff. And then he then goes to flight school a few years later. And I know this is a very small nitpick for like in the huge Star Wars universe and the wider problems, but um, the whole point of Star Wars fandom is fixating extremely on small characters. <laughs> he isn't even that small a character. He's a pretty main character played by a beloved actor. And I think that he got shafted and that was a very poor creative decision all around and I hate it. Yeah, it was really terrible. He has been so miserable on the press tour. I also, his wife also had a baby very recently, so yeah, I think he I'm actually is just, like, tired. tired. Um, <laughs> but he has seemed quite demoralized. And I think that he is the only actor who plays the main character in these movies for whom this actually was a net negative for his career, which is kind of depressing to think about. He was sort of on the rise with some big, or not big, but, like, very critically successful indies before doing these movies and since doing them has basically not done that and he did like you know a good production of hamlet in new york but this has really taken up a lot of his life i think he also had children and like it reminds me of the andrew garfield situation with spider-man where that really ate his life for a while and then he got out of it and started making interesting movies again so hopefully that will happen here obviously we were actually talking about this the other day but i'd forgotten that he's actually starring in the dune movie um, which Wild. I actually, which I, I mean, I am actually quite optimistic about. It's going to be directed by Denis Villeneuve, who, even though I did not like Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I have a lot of respect for as a filmmaker, particularly in terms of like science fiction of this scale. And he is one of the main leads of the film. So the three top leads are Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, and Oscar Isaac. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that it's good. Yeah, it just struck me, sort of thinking about this, that I think he's a super, super smart guy and has made some not actually that many but has made some really really good films including yes. obviously Inside Lewin Davis one of my favorites he has really good taste I think I think he probably just knows that this was not great I mean this movie specifically but like the whole situation for him was not excellent and it must be so depressing to have it end this way you know like fuck what a miserable situation and I mean Carrie Russell also uh, for her, it's fine. Obviously, you just make yeah. She has to give a shit. Whatever. She's gone in and she's played this role for five seconds and leaving. Like, right. <laughs> oh yeah. But I was watching it and I was just like, Carrie Russell is so much better than this. It's almost funny. Yeah. It just really was a bummer. His hair wasn't even as good in this movie. And you know what? That's just baseline <laughs> requirement. Symbolic. Like, you gotta get that right. <laughs> Oh god, do you know who looked so good in this movie? John Boyega looked amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he did look good. It's I mean, they all true. look good, but it was like. Great skin, great hair, fantastic new trousers. I mean, he's a very beautiful man and his moisturising routine must be world class. But, um, looked great. Ray also looked great. <laughs> yeah. Adam Driver looked fine. I was, it was not as much on the face as I was expecting because he wore a fucking helmet for half the movie. Like, come on, you know what we want and it is not that. Please. Do we think that J.J. Abrams forgot about the female gaze in between these films? Oh, I certainly <laughs> think that that happened, yes. <laughs> I mean, Adam Driver 2 basically doesn't make bad films. Truly, he's made like one bad movie since getting famous. And so God only knows what was going through his head as he read this script, which for him is purely just like nonsense expository dialogue and one scene where he cries because his dad comes to him in a vision. And then running around. Like, that's his whole role. I just... Oh my god. It was appalling. Do better. Professionals in Hollywood. I find it very appropriate that this episode has been extraordinarily disjointed, even though we had so many coherent thoughts beforehand. Like, like so many ideas overflow from one's mind, just like the experience of watching the film, where you keep remembering <laughs> new details. Like, like, for the next 24 hours, my brain kept spitting out stuff like, hey, remember when... Poe was a drug smuggler? <laughs> and I'd be like, I wish I didn't remember that. <laughs> remember how now they're uh, big spaceships can blow up planets and you don't need a Death Star to do that All anymore? of the just... spaceships. I had literally forgotten that. It's like they bring in this incredibly high stakes detail in order to give one of their many death fake outs, which was uh, the death slash survival of Zori Bliss, who we didn't really care about. And it's like, oh yeah, all the spaceships can kill 
planets now. Also, um, the thing that I thought about kind of in conjunction with Rose's disgracefully reduced role is the fact that J.J. Abrams clearly from day one has been very kind of invested in the idea of the Knights of Ren. And they are obviously something that's one of these things that's kind of created to sell toys and spin off comics and so forth. But he was like, going to have the Knights of Ren in the first film. Ryan Johnson was immediately like, don't give a shit about those. Ejected them. And I was expecting them to come back in this film. But then they include them. They have, I would say, more screen time than Rose. But we still don't actually know who the Knights of Ren are. Like, if you read, like, extended materials, you can find out more information. But none of them have characters, roles, backstory, or indeed any kind of cultural anything. It's like, if someone was like, who are the Knights of Ren? You'd be able to answer, pretty sure they're the Knights of Ren. (laughs) (laughs) No further info. (laughs) They don't speak. We don't see Kylo talking about them. They're They're Kylo Ren's backing dancers. (laughs) I mean, that's an accurate description. You've nailed it. That's the thing. Yeah, it's just a bummer. It reminds me a lot. I mean, obviously, my emotional investment was different, but it reminded me a lot of when um, Captain America Civil War came out. It just, like, <laughs> really had some potential here, and you've decided to squander it on every level. Well, that was, that was our conversation about the <laughs> Star Wars movie, which we hated. If you have listened to this for some reason without having seen it, don't give them your money. There are so many other movies out right now. Save yourself. One of those other movies you could see is Little Women, which we will be discussing next week, which I actually didn't love, although I thought it had many positive elements. But it was- I did love it. Yes. It will be a really interesting discussion because I am extremely familiar with the source material. And you were not. Yeah, I had not read the book. I went in without spoilers for a little yeah. women. <laughs> Incomprehensible to me. And, but there's a lot to talk about with that movie. I thought it was really interesting, even if I didn't love it. So that will be our next episode. And we also have a Die Hard episode on Patreon to celebrate the holiday. Uh, so we hope you are all having an excellent holiday season. Thank you for being with us for another year. May the next year bring better pop culture than this piece of trash. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, you can, as always, find my work on the Daily Dot, like um, including a whole bunch of Star Wars coverage. I've, I've in the kind of final week of the working year, there was an extensive review I wrote. There was kind of a piece about Rose. There's a piece about Poe. There's a piece bemoaning the lack of deaths. I want to see more <laughs> blood in these films. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, as always, at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Podcast. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.